Welcome to Life Beat, right to Life of Michigan's bi-weekly podcast going in-depth on pro-life news and issues. I'm your host, Chris Gast, Right to Life of Michigan's Director of Communication and Education. Happy Friday, everybody. Today, our feature is going to be looking at the record of Senator Debbie Stabenow. Uh, but first, we'll get into a couple of news issues. The biggest one uh, would be Governor Snyder vetoing our legislation to create a Choose Life license plate in Michigan. As we said, the Choose Life plate would create funding for pregnancy help programs and suicide prevention programs. The legislature uh, passed it. They thought it was very important to keep their promise to their pro-life constituents. And you never know, uh, sometimes the governor will sign pro-life legislation and sometimes he won't. Sometimes he can be moved to do it or sometimes he'll let the lieutenant governor do it. Uh, In this case, that was the hope that he would somehow come around on it, but he didn't. And in fact, he released a very disappointing statement indicating why he vetoed the legislation. He said it was inherently political and that it would be bitterly divisive for the state. Well, a majority of states in the country have Choose Life license plates. Every other state from down I-75 straight to Florida has a Choose Life license plate. Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a Choose Life license plate. And somehow all these states managed to avoid a uh, massive civil war, letting people purchase these plates. It's particularly galling when you consider that Planned Parenthood forces people to fund them for decades to the tunes of billions of dollars. Uh, people have no choice in the matter, but to offer people a choice uh, for the opposite is uh, too divisive to Governor Snyder. So that's unfortunate, but... We know that the support is still there for the Choose Life license plate. We're still committed to making it happen, and we have a gubernatorial election in 2018 where uh, Governor Snyder is term-limited, and so we'll have a new governor, and we look forward to uh, working with that person to make that Choose Life license plate finally a reality in Michigan. In other news, the Senate health care bill seems to be getting closer and closer to passage. Uh, we haven't really followed it closely because as it's gone through the process, the, the two really important things have, have remained in every iteration of the bill. And those two important things are, one, defunding Planned Parenthood, and two, preventing our tax credits from paying for insurance plans that cover abortion. And the most recent version of the Senate bill uh, has both of those two things in it, and so that's very encouraging. It's kind of funny, the... Uh, These bills have been uh, said to be dead in the House several times and dead in the Senate and they'll never pass and and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, we've killed these bills so many times. uh, It's like a cat, you know. It's on its 19th or 20th life now, in fact. And yet uh, it keeps, uh, keeps surviving the onslaught and keeps moving closer to reality. And we'll see what happens. Uh, The Senate bill uh, will be different than the House bill. And so then the House and Senate will have to reconcile their two differences if the Senate passes it. And then, of course, we'll have a whole new round of pronouncements that the uh, the compromise bill is dead and this senator or this representative is for it. And um, 
I don't know. It's like in the Obama era, the media forgot how to cover legislation. These things take debate and they go through several versions and compromises. Uh, Deals need to be met. Differences need to be ironed out. It's like America forgot how to legislate in the last eight years, Uh, particularly uh, when you deal with health care. I guess that's a side effect of the whole uh, Obamacare process. But uh, we'll keep monitoring as it goes, and when we, when you, we need, need you to make calls to your legislators, we'll let you know when that time is. The other piece of news I wanted to talk about was the Charlie Guard case in Britain. Uh, in case you aren't aware, and, and most people are, but uh, we'll go through it real briefly, Charlie Guard is a infant who has a very severe genetic disease that causes his, uh, the mitochondria in his cells not to uh, produce uh, enough energy. And so it has very severe health effects. He's in a hospital in London, the Great Ormond Street Hospital, uh, fighting for his life. Charlie's parents both uh, want Charlie to try one last experimental treatment. And this treatment is uh, primarily available in America called nucleoside therapy. Uh, it's kind of a long shot chance. They're not really sure what it could do for Charlie, but the parents obviously want to give it a try. Uh, it can't hurt in, it, in his situation. Uh, without it, he will generally uh, soon be dead. Well, the courts and the hospitals in Britain think that it's in Charlie's best interest to be dead, and so uh, Charlie's parents are fighting in court for the right to be able to take their child home. Now, there's a couple important things here in the case that aren't getting a lot of attention in the in the heated personal drama that we, we should really talk about briefly. The first is... Uh, unlike cases where, say, the hospital doesn't want to treat Charlie because maybe they believe that uh, the medical care is truly futile and won't actually help Charlie, um, you know, sometimes uh, we put doctors and hospitals in those positions. And in a certain sense, they have um, conscience rights. You know, they should be taking an oath not to harm a patient. And so sometimes, um, you know, sometimes not, but sometimes uh, you know, hospital and doctors will not want to provide a treatment because they see it as actually harming a patient. Uh, and and what happens generally then is they simply aren't uh, required to provide the treatment, and the parents have to f- or make other arrangements. In this case, and, and there's two differences here, but in this case, the first one I want to talk about is Charlie's being detained in the hospital. His parents have the financial means and another hospital willing to provide treatment that may be effective for Charlie. And the hospital's refusing. They essentially arrested Charlie, and they want him to die. That's, that's just wrong. You know, Charlie can't speak for himself. He's an infant, and so the best that he has in order to give consent and his wishes are his parents. And they want him to have one last chance. Uh, and they're under no illusions that it's a long shot chance. At no point do these parents seem to be delusional or emotionally unable to let go. Uh, they, they've said it repeatedly, you know, if we thought Charlie was suffering and there was no chance, then we would um, we would ask that any treatment be, be ceased and he'd be allowed to die naturally. But there's a treatment out there that may have a chance and we're willing to take that chance. We have... The means, the willingness, and another doctor here. Well, it signed on to do it. 
and the hospital and the courts have imprisoned Charlie and refusing to do it. I think the other key difference from those kinds of situations that do occur is, in some cases, medical care is futile. Uh, t- typically, when a person, uh, and only in those situations would be when a person is near the end of life, uh, very near uh, to death, and, and in those cases, medical care can truly be futile, even, for example, providing uh, food and fluids which in most cases should never, ever uh, not be provided. But for you know a dying person, sometimes they'll just simply be unable to, uh, their body will be unable to assimilate those food and fluids. And so providing those things to the patient offers zero benefit. That's, that's the definition of futile, zero benefit. In the Charlie Gard case and in many others, uh, we've developed a new definition of futile. And... and um, uh, Wesley J. Smith, who's a wonderful bioethicist, has dubbed this futile care theory. And under this theory, it's not uh, medical care that's futile, it's a person and their life that can be futile. And so a person may, or a person's patient advocates acting on their wishes may want a medical treatment, and this medical treatment may actually work, may actually improve the physical health of the patient. But futile care theory is based on quality of life and dictates that even wanted effective medical treatment should be denied if in the eyes of you know insurance companies or hospitals or whatnot or society, the patient is life unworthy of life. Now that has that term life unworthy of life has a horrible connotation and it should. That was the actual term the Nazis used to initiate their uh, T4 euthanasia program. They literally said that to disabled people, it's not in their interest to continue to be alive. We, Nuremberg trials, we, we tried people for doing what medical ethicists, medical ethicists today are arguing we should do. There was an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago arguing that uh, uh, lethally injecting a baby may be more... Um, a disabled baby may be more humane. The same paper will also denounce lethal injection of prisoners as cruel and unusual because of the pain and side effects that such treatments offer. It's it's warping medical ethics on their head. And so we as pro-life people need to be very clear and committed to the fact that there's no such thing as a futile person. Uh, medical people have a right to refuse unwanted medical care Sometimes medical care is uh, futile in which it doesn't improve a person's health in any way. But the idea that someone else can choose to take a course of action to end the life of another person because they don't think that person deserves the treatment is bone-chilling. It's bone-chilling. And so we'll see what happens in the Charlie Gard case. Hopefully, uh, by the time of our next podcast, I have great news to report that he is uh, will be allowed to go to America and given this treatment, which, uh, again, low likelihood of success, but uh, that likelihood is greater than zero, whereas doing nothing, the chance of Charlie's death is pretty much 100%. But anyway, let's get into our feature for the day. Debbie Stabenow, United States Senator from the state of Michigan. Uh, she's going to be up for re-election in 2018. 
So I think it's very important, and Right to Life Michigan thinks it's very important for people to understand what is her record. Where does Debbie Stabenow stand on our pro-life issues? And so uh, through Facebook and Twitter, Instagram and whatnot, uh, this summer we're running a series highlighting her record on the issues that we care about. Uh, we have a couple more interesting things planned, especially in the fall, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we have, uh, of course, a webpage on her and also uh, Senator Gary Peters, uh, both of our U.S. Senators, their record on abortion. We have a simple flyer giving some of these details. And let's take some time now and go through that. What does Debbie Stabenow believe about abortion? Uh, Stabenow has a long, long record in the Michigan legislature uh, and in Congress for these issues. Uh, for example, Debbie Stabenow supports late-term abortion. Uh, specifically, she voted against partial birth abortion ban in 2003. She voted against the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act in 2015, and that one would stop late-term abortions based on evidence that the child has the ability to feel pain. So Debbie Stabenow is in favor of partial birth abortions, favor of late-term abortions. She's voted repeatedly to fund Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider. Uh, in fact, in December 3rd, 2015, she voted three times to give them funding. And in fact, uh, one of those votes was to give them a billion dollars in funding on top of what the federal government already provides. Uh, of course, that failed, but uh, that's where Debbie Stabenow stands. Planned Parenthood should be given extra money simply because they're an abortion provider. Stabenow has voted more than eight times to fund organizations that commit abortions overseas with tax dollars. You think of the Mexico City policy, uh, United Nations Population Fund, things like that. Debbie Stabenow has voted to send money to abortion organizations and population control organizations overseas. Uh, very troubling vote. Uh, not that supporting partial birth abortion isn't troubling, but she voted against the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act. Uh, the simpler acronym for that is SIANA. And what SIANA would do was uh, in certain situations, you have states where uh, parental consent is required for abortions. You have a couple of pro-abortion states where they don't require parental consent. And in some cases, uh, people, uh, well, minors, children, have been smuggled across state lines uh, by school officials or others, smuggled across state lines to another state to avoid uh, the parental notification law in the state where the child lives. Um Violating parental rights is not okay. Uh, Debbie Stabenow's position is that uh, Sienna is bad and that you should be able to smuggle a child across state lines to have an abortion without parental consent. Debbie Stabenow in the Michigan legislature is a long record uh, supporting taxpayer funding of abortion, not just taxpayer funding of groups that perform abortions, but actually she voted to force Michigan taxpayers to pay for abortions through Medicaid in 1987. Of course, in 1988, we banned. Uh, that ban took effect for Medicaid-funded abortions, and abortions dropped in Michigan 10,000 in just the first year. And so that's the effect that we see of banning taxpayer-funded abortions. It saves hundreds of thousands of lives. Debbie Stabenow, to this day, would vote to support taxpayers to fund abortions. And of course, not only did she vote against Sienna on the federal level in Michigan, she voted against our 1990 parental consent law. So Debbie Stabenow believes that 
children, uh, parent, parents shouldn't have to give consent or even be notified that their child is having an abortion. Uh, what about some other issues? Uh, human embryonic stem cell research. Uh, Debbie Stabenow supports taking human life in order to uh, fund human embryonic stem cell research. She's voted several times, including 2007, 2006, to force taxpayers to fund research that takes human life. Uh, euthanasia, another big issue. While a member of the Michigan legislature, she voted against banning doctor-prescribed suicide in Michigan. And this was during the whole Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death era. She also voted against patient rights. Uh, she supported the pro-death living wills in Michigan. And of course, living wills are creation of the euthanasia movement, designed often not to respect a patient's wishes, but to subtly herd that patient towards uh, denying life-saving care, even food and fluids, as we talked about earlier in the Charlie Gard case. You should never take away food and fluids from someone in order to cause them to die by starvation or dehydration. Food and fluids are not medical care. That's uh, it's a necessity for human life, for every human life in every situation. Giving someone water is not a medical treatment. Uh, thankfully today, Michigan patients can rely on durable power of attorney for health care to make sure that their specific wishes are fulfilled. Debbie Stabenow, as a member of the U.S. House, also voted against the Pain Relief Promotion Act. Uh, that would have banned the use of federally controlled substances uh, for prescribing those to suicidal patients. Again, we talk about, uh, we referred about the Charlie Gard case and that article in the New York Times. These drugs used to lethally inject prisoners are denounced by people as cruel and unusual for the side effects, uh, the pain, the, the struggle and death that they can sometimes cause for uh, condemned patients. But we'll turn around and we'll say we should use these drugs, these lethal drugs, on babies. On babies. It's cruel and inhumane to use it against a murderer, but against an innocent child, uh, that's the best, it's in the child's best interest to be given a lethal drug. Um, you know, there you go. One more thing I wanted to cover, and this is... Um, particularly, particularly troubling, is in 2014, uh, Debbie Stabenow voted for U.S. Senate Joint Resolution 19. And this is a constitutional amendment to repeal the free speech portion of the First Amendment. That's right. She voted to allow federal and state governments to criminalize speech that might influence elections. Now, you might, uh, someone might say, well... Uh, you know, it wouldn't affect other freedom of speech. It's just, you know, during elections. But if you look at the history of the First Amendment, the history of our country, the entire reason we have a First Amendment, the entire reason we have freedom of speech and the press and the rights for people to peaceably assemble and petition their government for a redress of grievances is so that people can criticize government figures. In Britain, it was a crime to criticize the king. That's the, one of the biggest reasons that we had in the American Revolution. Our Declaration of Independence is one long list of criticisms of King George III. And doing this was uh, to put the uh, 
the Continental Congress in open rebellion against the king. And Debbie Stabenow voted to criminalize speech that might influence elections. That's why we have the freedom of speech. And specifically, the Senate Joint Resolution 19 would give Congress the authority to ban groups or organizations or corporations or anyone from doing from spending any money and influencing election. Let's break that down for a minute. Uh, this is Right to Life of Michigan. You know, we, we do education and we work on legislation, but we also do political action. We get involved in elections, not just uh, the Right to Life of Michigan Political Action Committee, but educating voters about issues during elections. That's what we do. If Debbie Stabenow had her way with her uh, repeal of portions of the First Amendment, um, it would be a crime for me to be doing what I'm doing right now. I'm a paid employee of Right to Life of Michigan. I'm using my work time to educate you about the record of a candidate. If I were to do this during an election, I could be fined or thrown in jail for, for, for talking to you right now on a podcast in a country that was fought over an oppressive king who wouldn't allow people to criticize him. You know, uh, take that for, for, for what you will. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting, the, uh, the amendment that they do specifically exempts, well, we're not going to repeal freedom of the press. Um, okay, but anyone with a printing press anyone with the ability to print and distribute literature to people is a member of the press. This podcast is a form of the media and the press. So I don't know what kind of situation would come if her amendment passed. Uh, Would we have to license journalists and allow them and so only journalists could speak about elections and, and any other, you know, everyone else would be forbidden. Now, you say, well, people wouldn't be forbidden to speak about elections, but, well, you know, you speaking to one person is, is important, but people, as the First Amendment gives a right of people to gather together, to peaceably assemble, to petition government for redress of grievances, to assemble together, to put a newspaper out. It's implicit in the First Amendment. Uh, this is not one of those sort of, you know, crazy penumbras that gives us abortion. This is... Uh, a historically protected for extremely good reasons. Hor- you can't stress it enough. And the entire reason this amendment came about was the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. And um, this should be chilling. Uh, in, in the case of Citizens United, a group of people banded together to exercise their free speech rights to distribute a film criticizing Hillary Clinton who was running for public office. All these people wanted to do was engage in the political process, use their free speech, as was their inalienable right as an American citizen. And the government wanted to find them and criminalize their speech. The Supreme Court said no. The Supreme Court said no. Now listen to this from... Anthony Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is not a great friend of the pro-life movement, but here he is, he's uh, in his, in the majority opinion of Citizens United, he said, quote, 
If the First Amendment has any force, it prohibits Congress from fining or jailing citizens or associations of citizens for simply engaging in political speech, unquote. Senator Debbie Stabenow would vehemently degree, disagree with Justice Anthony Kennedy and would say that Congress sponsored an amendment to the effect to allow Congress to fine or jail citizens or association of citizens for engaging in political speech, including Right to Life of Michigan, other pro-lifers, myself, Chris Gast. So that is the record of Senator Debbie Stabenow. Again, we'll be highlighting this on social media throughout the summer. We'll have a couple other interesting things in the fall, so stay tuned for that. Um, of course, we'll provide you with information as we get in through the election with the other candidates for Senate. I know there's been some rumors lately about who's running and, and, and excitement and whatnot. Um, you know, we'll we'll let that work through the process. The Right to Life of Michigan Political Action Committee will we'll get through that process and look at the record of all the candidates, and then uh, we'll go from there. All right, that's all the time we have for this edition of LifeBeat. Join us again in two weeks where we're going to switch gears a little bit from current events for our feature and talk about abortions and vaccines. It's gotten a little bit more attention lately. It's the number one hit on uh, Google is our page on it, and so it's it's number one trafficked item on our website. And so we're going to give people a reminder about that information then. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.